Our scripture reading is from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could no longer, she took him for a basket. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, having heard now your word read in the presence of your people, we pause in our own hearts before you prayerfully. And we would ask now that by your spirit you would teach us from this word. That we would find the light of your truth shining brilliantly within us. And that the testimony of the shared time in this word together in Exodus chapter 2 would be that we have met with the living God. And we are forevermore changed. Lord, would you hear this prayer now and answer it. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'm looking forward in just a few minutes uh, from now to, to sing together our second uh, communion hymn. You might even look at it. It's on page 12 in your um, bulletin. Uh, there is a fountain filled with blood, a beautiful hymn by uh, none other than William uh, Cooper. Now, some of you will be familiar with that name, William uh, Cooper. He was a a contemporary of uh, the Reverend John Newton, who was that slave trader turned pastor, turned even more richly and deeply for our benefit, uh, turned hymn writer. And and you know his hymns. Now, you might not immediately be able to uh, remember them, but you you, you know the hymn, uh, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Uh, you know the, the hymn, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. And if you're sitting there going, no, I don't, I don't know either of those hymns. You know the hymn, Amazing Grace. 
Yes, that was written by Reverend John Newton, a contemporary of William Cooper. And Cooper was a budding poet. He was a hymn writer himself. And his, we might say, his ship came in when John Newton asked him in 1769 to partner in a release of brand, a brand new hymn book collection. And I'm sure that Cooper couldn't sign the contract quick enough for the release of that new uh, hymn book. And it was there where we actually received for the first time, uh, There is a Fountain uh, Filled with Blood from um, William Cooper. But we also received from him uh, one of my very favorites, uh, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Uh, some of you may know it just simply from its poetry, but it was uh, given to us as a hymn, and it's gone through uh, a number of iterations with regards to its uh, tune. But these words uh, have ministered to many souls over the years. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now there's... Those final couplets, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face, could be an apt summary of Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Because this passage begins as where chapter 1 ends with the edict of Pharaoh being given to all Egyptian citizens. That if you see a little baby Hebrew boy and he is alive, then you need to pick him up and throw him into the Nile River. That's the edict that which we ended Exodus chapter 1 with. A gruesome, terrible edict that came down from a tyrannical ruler who with his xenophobia and murderous threats regarding the people of Israel who had grown so mighty in the land of Egypt, he wanted to do whatever it is that he could do to diminish their numbers and demoralize uh, their spirit and character. And he certainly didn't want any young men growing into potential soldiers among the Hebrew people who could at one point in the future maybe join with one of their enemies and then eventually escape from the land. That's the end of Exodus chapter 1, a frowning providence, and indeed must have been uh, nothing but night after night and day after day, a fearsome nightmare for the people of Israel, especially those like the Levite man and Levite woman in the context of the beginning of our passage in Exodus chapter 2, who have been married now, and are expecting their first child. And before the days of sonograms, where we could know the sex of the child before it was delivered, upon delivery, they must have gained both that sense of great excitement that the Lord had given to them a child, 
and the simultaneous sense of doom that this child was a boy. Behind this frowning providence, God gives to us a smiling face. And his name is Moses. This story, in the midst of that frowning providence, unfolds for us the powerful, smiling face of a God who has promised salvation and deliverance, and he comes now in the form of a little crying baby in a basket boat uncovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Behind this frowning providence, there is this smiling face. Now, when we look together here at Exodus chapter 2 with this mysterious work of the providence of God in the back of our minds and with the acknowledgement of God's redemptive promises being fulfilled in the opening chapters here in Exodus 2, I want to consider this text with you in four specific ways, looking at what I'd like to argue is actually the four main characters of Exodus chapter 2. And believe it or not, it's not yet Moses. Uh, The rest of the book of Exodus will be in large part about Moses. But today, as important as he is for the unfolding of all of the drama of Exodus 2, he actually plays a supporting actor role. There are three main lead actresses in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And there is the ever-present and yet seemingly in the backdrop, but as I will argue in the foreground, there is the lead character of every text in the Scripture. He goes by the name of God. I want you to see first in this text the profound faith of Moses' mother. The profound faith of Moses' mother. Notice this in Exodus 2, verses 1 through 3. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Here is Moses' mother, a woman of profound faith. Now you might wonder, as I highlight particularly their exercise of faith, why I'm not highlighting her exercise of love. You might look at that text and say, that is a mother's love. To do all within her might to be able to bring about the provision and care and literally the survivability of this, her baby boy. And doing so at great risk to herself, defying Pharaoh's own commands. She hid him for three months and took care of him until the time when that little baby newborn cry began to begin to grow into that more screechy three-month, four-month old cry that she knew she couldn't keep him huddled down any longer, that before long the Egyptian authorities would be showing up, knocking on her door and snatching up her son and tossing him into the Nile. 
And so we get to the point where she decides to make of herself something of an amateur boat builder. She goes to those reeds along the side of the Nile River, undoubtedly, pulling up those papyrus reeds and forming a little raft with some secure sides, something with a lid that could be placed upon it. She waterproofed it with the bitumen, a tar-like substance, alongside the pitch to make of this, for her little son, a little basket boat. Clearly, this is love that this woman has for this child. And yes, indeed, it is it is that, but that's actually not how she's remembered. It's not how she's remembered in the New Testament. You know, it's always a good idea to find other texts in the Bible that actually reference the text that you're studying. And there's a reference text in Hebrews chapter 11 for this text, Exodus chapter 2. And it's in that great hall of faith chapter that many of you know and love. A litany of leaders and heroes of the Old Testament who exercise tremendous faith in their followership of God. And it's there where we read in verse 23 of Hebrews 11 these words. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This is how Hebrews remembers this couple, that by faith they did these things. Well, where do we see their faith then? That should be the question we ask, especially this mother's faith. We see her love, that's obvious. Where do we see her faith in this passage? Well, I'd like to suggest that her faith is glimpsed by the fact that she has entrusted her child to the providence of God. She entrusts her child to the providence of God. Mothers in this room, I really want you to just get in the shoes of this mother for just a second who has given birth to this precious baby boy and has just labored uh, for three months nursing him and caring for him and trying to get him not to cry at night when he could be more easily heard. She's lived in fear and care for this child and now has created this little basket boat for him to potentially survive and, and, and make it a little while longer. We don't know how decisive and how detailed her plan was, what she anticipated or expected uh, to happen, but we know that she is seeking, as best as she knows to do, um, the survivability of this, her beloved child. She's placed him in the basket, and she's done so undoubtedly with, with tears. Maybe she's getting him to be quiet. We actually find out in the text he's crying when Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And so here she is um, trying to comfort him, maybe whispering a lullaby uh, underneath her breath as she closes the lid upon that child and puts him in the river, Nile, and walks Away, wondering, will he survive? Will I ever see my son? This is an incredible expression, according to Hebrews chapter 11, of a woman of faith who says, I entrust him to my God and his promises. As a father of five children who I dearly love, I found myself wondering, what truths do I need to believe about my children? What truths do I need to believe about God to have the kind of faith that this woman would have to so entrust herself, her child to the God of heaven and earth 
that she would be willing to place him in the Nile River as a potential plan for his survival. And certainly the first truth that popped into my mind was as a parent, first and foremost, there must be a settled conviction that this child is not mine, it is God's. Settled conviction in the mind and the heart of this parent that this child is not mine, this child is God's. I love the story of Amelia Taylor, who is the mother of the famous missionary uh, Hudson Taylor, the great um, Chinese uh, the missionary to the Chinese people. It has been said that Amelia Taylor prayed daily for her son, that he would be used of the Lord mightily, potentially in the work of mission. She never thought of her son merely as her son. She thought of her son as a stewardship. Uh, that had been given to her a gift from the Lord for a particular time for the raising of that son that he might be released into whatever it is that the Lord God had called him into. I love the, the mirror story of, of Abigail Judson, who's the mother of the famous missionary Adoniram Judson, who served the Burmese people. It's told of her that she also prayed for her son, but not as vigilantly and not as bravely as, as Amelia Hudson did. She prayed that he might be used of the Lord in mission work or in ministry, but, but she reticent, was reticent to pray that he would go far away from her or that he would be called into anything that would be risky with regards to his own life. She wouldn't go as far as... Amelia Hudson in her prayers for her own son. And some of us in this room find ourselves closer to Abigail Judson than Amelia Hudson when we pray for our children. God here is showing us through the faith of this woman who is the mother of Moses that she has entrusted him entirely to the Lord. Let me ask you, if you believe that your children are God's first and foremost rather than your own, can you also then believe that this same God can take care of them when you close the lid on them in the Nile River and that they might not be in any less care than when they are in your arms in the rocking chair at home? Such is the faith of this woman. Such is the faith of this woman. Presenting her own son in good earnestness and faith before the Lord. It is a faith of profound consequence. When we look at the life of Moses' mother. But I want you to see secondly the surprising compassion of Pharaoh's daughter. This is lead actress number two in Exodus chapter two. Now the end of verse four, as we're just reading through the text, and if you do read through the text, and maybe this is your first time through the book of Exodus, and you're like, wow, this is riveting. Um, here is a baby that's been placed in a little miniature boat on the Nile River as an attempt for his own survivability. 
And, and we wonder, do we not at the end of, of, of verse uh, 3, especially what's going to happen to this child, right? That's where we are as readers in the story. And then notice in verse 4, we're introduced to Moses' sister. She's there watching, we're told, standing at a distance. Why is she there? Look at verse 4. To know what would be done to him. That's where we are. We're sitting on the edge of our seats, so to speak, looking out what's going to be done to him. And we would actually expect that we're going to have resolution fairly quickly to this, this story. And, and the tension is already at something of a fever pitch. But notice the writer takes it up a notch or two. Because at the opening of verse 5, we hear these words. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to the river to bathe. Now just pause for a minute. You've never read this story. You're through Exodus chapter 1, and you're up to Exodus chapter 2, verse 5. And you pause, and as soon as you hear Pharaoh's daughter has entered the Nile River, you do not have lovely thoughts. This is fear-striking. This is a heart-stopping moment in the text. Here is the very last people that we would want to see in the Nile River at this moment. This is one of the inner royal family of Pharaoh himself who was given the edict for the killing of all Hebrew boys by throwing them into the Nile. She's come down here with a band of her servant girls to bathe. And the best we can hope for is that she's just not going to see the basket boat. And not hear the cry of this young boy. Well, no such luck. Notice verse 5. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant and took it. Now, again, as the, as the writer is slowly giving to us incremental glimpses into what's taking place, here we are, if this were a movie, awaiting to see what's going to happen next. Or if you're like some of my children at home in the moments of suspense in the movie, you're like, you're like covering your eyes. You don't want to see, but you're looking. You know, you're looking through the cracks, right? You, you do want to see, but you don't want to see. And that's exactly where you are in the unfolding of the, the narrative. And then verse 6 slowly unpacks it. When she opened it, the basket, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And then we hear, and she took pity on him. She took pity on him. <laughs> and our blood pressure is saved. <laughs> we are all of a sudden comforted by the fact that we now have one of the royal family who is nearby, which means that there's a potential for something to happen that could have Authority, something good that could happen with someone from authority. And she is described here as one with compassion. She, she is, she's full of compassion. She, we don't see any of, of, of the xenophobia and murderous intents of her father lurking around in her heart. Praise the Lord. The, the apple has fallen far from the tree. It's a beautiful picture of, of God's grace here that this is who it is that stumbles across uh, the basket uh, here on the edges of the Nile River and that she is filled with compassion when she lays her eyes on that crying baby 
in the basket. Oh, it's a beautiful moment, isn't it? In, in, a, in a fretful and anxious uh, narrative. But it's, it's actually a lot more than a hallmark moment. This is not just sentimentality. I know some of you women are out there, you're like swooning at the sweetness of this, right? You see, oh, a little crying baby that she's now going to get to take care of and all of that is just beautiful, right? It is the stuff of the Hallmark, cha- Hallmark Channel. But this moment is a turning point in redemptive history, you see. Because it's here that we have just witnessed once again the seed of the woman in crisis. You remember back in Genesis 3 verse 15 where we're told the unfolding of the biblical narrative will be along two seed lines, two offspring. They'll be the seed of the woman who will be in constant clash against the seed of the serpent. The serpent is going to, to bring injury to the hill, to the seed of the woman. A future clash is coming. But the seed of the woman is going to deal a death blow to the seed of the serpent. Going to crush, indeed, his very head. Now, we've been seeing this. If we've been reading along in the Bible through the book of Genesis, we've been seeing this unfold because Abraham... It was promised a seed, promised a son, just keeps getting older and older. And Sarah just keeps getting older and older. And we begin to wonder, are they ever going to have the promised seed? There's something of a crisis. Where will this offspring come? You remember Abraham had his own ideas of how he could get his offspring. And he ultimately spawned an entire uh, d- generation and, 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 and grouping and lineage, not of the promised line. And yet it would be when he was old in age and Sarah old in age that the crisis of the seed would be alleviated through the fruit of Sarah's womb and Isaac would be born. And then it would be Isaac who would give birth to Jacob and Esau. And do you remember a clash between those two? Anyone remember? Yes, yes, they actually came into the world fighting with one another. One holding on to the hill. Isn't that interesting? Based on Genesis 3.15. Holding on to the hill of the other, and it would be later in the narrative, wouldn't it, where Esau would try to kill Jacob for what it is that he did, and the crisis of the offspring would continue. And then don't we see it with Jacob's sons in relationship to Joseph, uh, the one who is sold into slavery, which is how he got into Egypt in the first place. But, but ultimately Judah, one of, one of Jacob's own son, from which the lineage of Jesus will come from, is starving to death because of the famine. And what happens? The whole family ends up in Egypt and they end up in Egypt because Joseph ultimately is going to be the redeemer of those people. And then they get this land of Goshen and once again the crisis is averted. And we open up in Exodus 1 and what's happening? Well, the same thing that's been happening, but different. And this time, the edict is from Pharaoh. And it's toward all of the Hebrew seeds, all the baby boys. And in the midst of that remarkable unfolding and irony, we have this incredible redemptive break-in. Of the sovereign plan of God who rescues among the seeds, the seed who will become the redeemer of Israel out of Egypt. Oh, and what a remarkable irony it is, isn't it? That this is Pharaoh's own daughter. If it really is, it really is, there's something of hilarity that's built in here to the text. That the irony of, of, of Pharaoh, this strong leader, giving 
an edict for all the Hebrew boys to be killed and then his own family won't obey him. His own family decides that they will resist. And and indeed, through a legal measure of adopting this Hebrew child, you know, she actually, by adopting him, makes this Hebrew child her own, which means he's he's no longer a candidate for the Nile River. And isn't it interesting that Pharaoh is actually going to raise this Hebrew boy right within the precincts of his own palace. And this Hebrew boy is going to become for him his greatest fear. What does Pharaoh fear? Well, he he fears that the Hebrew people would grow so large that they might join with an enemy which would ultimately defeat Egypt and the people would leave Egypt. What happens? And and there's something of the the, the cosmic irony of this in the providence of God's plan unfolding through Pharaoh's daughter that God is so powerful that right underneath Pharaoh's nose, he's going to raise his demise. And he's going to do it through one of his own daughters. You know, it's really quite remarkable, isn't it? The whole beginning of the book of Exodus, going back to Shifra and Pua in the former narrative of Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives that defied Pharaoh's laws and ultimately obeyed allegiance to God. And now we have these women here in Exodus chapter 2 who are being used by God as the hinges through which the unfolding of the redemption of the people of Egypt will come about. Pharaoh's so strong that God can use women those of which are Hebrews that have no standing, those women which are princesses, and even little Miriam, even Moses' little sister, he's going to just use all them to completely undo Pharaoh's plan. Such is the providence and the power of Almighty God. But listen, one of the things I want you to see, even at this point in the story, you'll get to see it, I think, a number, a number of times as we go through the book of Exodus, is the fact that that what we're seeing here also, I think Philip Ryken, I think, makes this, this note. We're seeing actually the fulfillment of the greater plan and the redemption of God hinted at by seeing the pity and compassion of this Pharaoh's daughter towards this Hebrew boy. We're seeing something of the future mission of the gospel even breaking in among the Gentiles. Already into the narrative. Do you know, you think of the people of Israel leaving Egypt and being freed and coming into their own constitution and, and, um, and establishment as a nation. And indeed, that's what we will see throughout the book of Exodus. But do you know, when you read Exodus 12, we're told that the people who actually leave Egypt aren't just Hebrews. We're told it's a mixed multitude. What it means is that some of the Egyptians actually saw all the power of God in the plagues. And they heard the stories of God's redemption of these people. And they said, when you're leaving, I'm going with you. I'm not staying in Egypt because whoever your God is, well, he is God. I will fear and follow him. It was wonderful this week to read in Acts chapter 8 of of that great story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Where is Ethiopia? Anyone remember? 
Yes, it's right in and around where Egypt is, right in that African uh, massive land. And it's there where the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the prophet Isaiah. He's come to Jerusalem to worship. And Philip is told in the spirit to go over there and speak to him. And as he goes and speaks to him, he asks him, what is it that you read? And he shows him he's reading from Isaiah 53. And then he says, do you understand what you read? Always a very important second question. Do you understand what you read? And he says, how can I without someone telling me? Now remember that when you get discouraged in your Bible reading and you have no idea what's going on. That that Ethiopian eunuch, as he was reading, is going, how am I going to understand this unless somebody helps me? And Philip says, well, that's why I'm here. And it says he begins to tell him about Jesus unfolded from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And there very soon after this Ethiopian, right there close to where Egypt is, this Gentile, they pass by a river and he says, look, there's water. Can I be baptized? And isn't it fascinating that as he is baptized, we're told as as the Ethiopian unit comes out of the water, it's going to be language we're going to see in Exodus 2. As he comes out of the water, Philip disappears and is taken in the spirit somewhere else. Do you know that would have never happened had it not been for this moment in redemptive history? This, this woman and her compassion, surprising compassion for this Hebrew boy is a hinge on which the redemptive story unfolds. But I want you to see thirdly, I want you to see Moses' sister. And here's what I want you to see about Moses' sister. I want you to see her discerning care. Her discerning care. You know, we first meet her, don't we, there beside her, her baby brother. She's beside the river. We're told that she's standing there at some distance. She doesn't want to be too close. But she wants to know what's going to happen to him. She cares for him. And as she's sitting there and the the drama unfolds and Pharaoh's daughter opens up the lid and there's kindness that's expressed towards the Hebrew baby boy. What do we see uh, Moses' sister do? Well, she pipes up. She comes out of the distance. She comes maybe out from the reeds and makes herself known. Uh, What must have been to to Pharaoh's uh, daughter and the servant girls around her, something of of a surprise. And as she shows up, she says, um, ma'am, Would you like me to go get someone to nurse this baby boy for you? Now, it's a genius comment. Such a discerning care. Notice the assumption in the comment. The assumption is that you want to care for this baby. She didn't ask her. (laughs) She assumed do you want me to go find someone that can nurse this child for you so that this child could be, could, could be cared for? Do you, do you want that? Notice the assumption in that. Notice even the hint of adoption. Do you, do you want us to go find someone? Do you want me to go find someone who could nurse this child for you? For you. Now, now part of us might be thinking, okay, if we are Pharaoh's daughter here, because I, who are you? And And... Why are you presuming upon my future care of, of this particular child, right? Some of that response may be there. Notice none of that's in the text. It's just our imaginations. All that she says to the girl is go. Now, we don't know what Pharaoh's daughter knew. You have to believe she's reasonably educated. She's within Egyptian royal circles. 
Um, she probably puts two and two together. Here's a baby in the water. There's a girl hanging out who has a network with nurses. <laughs> like may, maybe there's a connection here. But notice that's not the line of reasoning. That's not the line of questioning that arises. All that is cared about is the survival of this baby boy. A discerning care that's given from this young lady. What an amazing blessing she is. We come to find out, of course, later in, in our reading of the book of Exodus that this is, this is very likely Miriam, unless there's a sister that we don't know about. This is likely Miriam, who's going to show up multiple times throughout the book of Exodus. In fact, she's going to be there and sing alongside and lead in the hymn that Moses will write and sing for the people of God when they're on the other side of the Red Sea. And that moment doesn't happen unless this moment happens. Unless little Miriam, who was probably... Grammar age to middle school age. And her discerning care, a part of the plot to take care of her little brother. Three women. Moses' mother, Pharaoh's daughter, and Moses' sister, Miriam, are all together being used by God to bring forth the redemption of the people of Israel. It speaks of God's sovereign power and providence, doesn't it? which is actually where I want us to go. Fourthly, I want you to see the wonderful mystery of God's promise, providence here. Wonderful mystery, because it is mysterious. You know, from one angle, Moses' mother obeyed. Moses' mother obeyed. All Hebrew boys are to go into the Nile. And, and, and so she obeyed. Not probably what Pharaoh had in mind. Um, but, but he goes into the Nile. Isn't it interesting when you're beginning to think through God's providence here? He, he goes to, to what is for the people of Israel at this moment um, the most, the saddest location in their life and in their historical moment. The Nile River is known to be this incredible resource for life and fertility in and around the African plain there in Egypt, a place where without it, this arid desert location would likely not produce the crops that is needed to be produced. In fact, it was considered so important and essential to the life of the Egyptians that they, they worshipped it. They had a God associated with the Nile. There's even a theory that maybe um, the, the pagan um, sister or daughter here of Pharaoh, as she gets a baby in a, basically a package on the side of the Nile, that her deducement might be that the gods have, have brought him to me. It's not beyond the pale of possibility. This God who is known for fertility, who's known for life, has become for the people of God a place of the dead, a watery grave for untold number of Hebrew boys. And it's in that grave where Moses is saved. It's in that grave, you understand. It's in the place of the dead 
where the salvation of Moses is one. Oh, the wonderful mystery of God's providence. It's not unlike, isn't it, the story of Noah. When you begin to think about it, a man, well, shut up in a, in a boat with his, his family while everybody around him in the water dies. It's not unlike the story of, of Noah. He also becomes this incredible leader among the people of, 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 well, of God's lineage, his seed, from Genesis 9 forward through God's covenant with, with, with Noah. And indeed, I would suggest that the text wants you to see that. And, and no, I'm not, I'm not reading into the text, you see. That, that word there in the text, translated basket, that I have called several things this morning. I've called it a, a basket. I've called it a raft. I've called it a basket boat. Um, n- none of those are actually the Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew word uh, for this little vessel is ark. This is the only other time we see the word ark in all the scripture. I'm going to suggest that's meaningful. That maybe what the Lord is doing here in the life of Moses is revealing to us the redemptive line for the unfolding of the new era of redemptive history that will come in and through Moses. What a wonderful and mysterious providence this is. But but that's not all. You know, this baby born of Moses' mother, who, by the way, her name is Jochebed. We will meet her later in Exodus. Her name will, will actually come up. I have been calling Moses, Moses, the whole time of this sermon. If you notice, I was calling him Moses at the beginning and calling him Moses still. But he's not actually Moses until verse 10. I'm actually reading verse 10 back on the first nine verses. It's actually somewhat unusual. He's been around for three months and he doesn't have a name. At least not that we're aware of in the text. It's not, it's not revealed to us. He doesn't actually get a name until he's adopted. Until he's brought into Pharaoh's family through his daughter. And what's interesting about it is that as an Egyptian woman, it would have been obviously the thing to do would be to give him an Egyptian name. Right? He's adopted into an Egyptian lineage now. All of what is Egypt's is his through the daughter of Pharaoh. Well, the name that's given to him, Moses, actually does have translation into Egyptian. And, and it literally means a son or a born one. He, he is a son, a born one. Okay. Very generic. That's what his name means in Egyptian. But notice, that's not why she names him that. Why does she name him Moses? Because of the Hebrew. The Hebrew name Moses means he is drawn out. Literally, he's drawn out of the water. And that's what we see in verse 10. He became to her a son and she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Isn't it very interesting that the Egyptian daughter of Pharaoh, names him Moses for Hebraic 
lineage and history using Hebrew identity, identity markers, not Egyptian. As if to say, though this young man will be my son officially, he will be in his identity one who is a Hebrew. One who will grow up into the name drawn out of the water. Now it doesn't take very long or you don't have to be a rocket scientist to begin to reflect upon the unfolding story of the book of Exodus and to realize that this young man named Moses will grow into his name quite well. For he will become ultimately the redeemer of the people of Israel who will lead them out of the Exodus and who will embark through the greatest paradigm of redemptive and salvific history in the Old Testament as he brings them or draws them out of the water of the Red Sea into the freedom of being the people of God. Little did this daughter of Pharaoh know that as she named Moses for the event of drawing him out of the water, she was actually, in a sense, prophesying the Redeemer and Deliverer he would become. What a wonderful and mysterious providence. It's almost as if God is in control. It's almost as if he's in control. That he wasn't frightened by any of these things. He wasn't unnerved by any of these things. That what we would call a crisis for the offspring, he was never shaking in his boots. What we saw as a minor tip of a slight wave in a rather large river known as the Nile could lead to the demise of the Redeemer of the people of Israel in this generation. He saw as safe sailing. Because the world unfolds not by the machinations of men and their resources, but by the promises and the providence of God. What a wonderful and mysterious providence this is. As we think through the story and the meaningfulness of the book of Exodus, we have to recognize that, well, not only do we see here the the glimpse into what the redemption looks like for the people of Israel in this generation, but it hearkens, doesn't it, forward to the redemption that we will enjoy and do enjoy by the likes of Jesus Christ, who what? when he was in crisis, went to Egypt. We read about that in Matthew, don't we? And out from Egypt, he leads an exodus, uh, becomes the redeemer of his people. And on the cross, actually goes, as it were, under the waves of God's wrath for us. So that on the third day, he would rise again from those waves with the name Jesus, the one, as it were, who saves, who rescues. You see, he is the one who ultimately is this greater Moses 
the one who is leading that greater redemption. That's Jesus. He's the one who actually doesn't doesn't just float through the waters. He's the one who goes down under the waters. He's the one who actually is drowned in the wrath of God for us. But he's the one who, because of his perfection and because of his righteousness, is the one who comes springing forth from the bottom of the sea of God's wrath to live forevermore on the throne of God and to live and intercede for us as people. And this is why you see when you cross the river, and you will, All of us in here will cross the river. And you know what river I'm talking about. What we like to sometimes refer to as the Jordan. As we look to Beulah land on the other side of the shore. When we cross the river and we quit breathing. That we know that there will be someone who will bring us through the waves to safekeeping on that celestial shore. Because he's already been there for us. And secured us a space. And that if he has won our greatest enemy death. Then maybe we should feel the confidence of that. And live according to that calling. That maybe he would use the likes of, I don't know, mothers in this room. Raising children. Maybe use little sisters in this room with discerning care. And even use people who look like their enemies and turn them into friends through compassion and love as a means by which to advance as a kingdom now in the likes of the 21st century. Because when we pass through that day, he will give us fully and finally our name. And the name that he will give us will be Christian, will be Christ. For all of who Christ is and all that he has done has been charged to your account, O believer in him. And if the grave didn't hold him, it won't hold you either. And you will be known even as you know. You will be like unto him. You will be Christian. We long for that day, don't we? Where the fullness of the mystery of God's providence will be known. Now we see through a glass darkly. Through shadows and mysterious providences. Then we will see face to face. Oh, Father, we look forward to that day. We look forward to that day when we know that all is known. And all that is left is your love. All that is left is your love. We give you praise for the birth of Moses. For the immense and remarkable story of your grace that you're sharing through his life and his ministry. And for how it teaches us about your faithfulness. Lord, today would you open up our hearts to believe it, to embrace it, and walk according to its glorious light. And would we find in the mystery of your promise and providence, would we find hope? Not that we have to understand, but that all is already understood. All is known. It's in the palm of your hand. And no matter what leaders of this life and tyrannical dictators breathe, You'll always have a 
a daughter and a mother and a sister somewhere, using the least likely to bring forth the greatest of salvations. Lord, help us to remember that. And from that light, walk in faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.